Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. How will beer and wine taste different in a warmer world? Climate One conversations feature oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, the exciting and the scary aspects of the climate challenge. I'm Greg Dalton. Americans drank 26 gallons of beer and cider per person in 2018, but extreme weather due to climate change has started to disrupt the business of brewing. Beer is over 90% water, and being headquartered here in Colorado, we are um, very prone to drought and forest fires. Katie Wallace is director of social and environmental impact at New Belgium Brewing, maker of Fat Tire and other craft beers. A hallmark of the craft beer movement has been the variety of creative ingredients used in the brewing process. Ingredients whose availability has become more volatile due to disrupted weather patterns. One of the crazy things about climate change for wine is that in the short term, it's kind of a lot of good news among some not so good news. Esther Mobley is the wine critic of the San Francisco Chronicle, where she writes about California wine along with beer, spirits and drinking culture more generally. Americans drank nearly 1 billion gallons of wine in 2018, thanks in part to an expanding global map of wine-growing regions. You have to see more consistency and more quality throughout the world, so it's never been a better time to be a wine drinker. Dan Petrosky is a winemaker at Larkmead Vineyards in the Napa Valley, north of San Francisco, near recent wildfires. I began our conversation on the Climate One stage by asking him for the big-picture impact of climate change on wine. I've been looking at the wine industry is not just uh, wine, beverage. Um, it's more of a, it's an agricultural product. Yeah, I think when we start talking about wine and climate change, we're talking about the agricultural impacts of climate change. So that's something that that's first and foremost um, in my mind. It's not about our beverage that we drink together at night at home and over the dinner. It's more about being an agricultural product. So it's grape production. How is climate affecting grapes? Are they, are they, they, we tend to think of them as kind of uh, delicate and you know tender. <laughs> from from uh, an insider's point of view, we also think of grapevines as being very resilient. Mm. Um, they can handle stress. And it's often said that the best wines of the world are grown in some of the most stressful conditions, whether it be soil conditions or weather conditions. Napa Valley, where I live and work, happens to be one of those areas where it can be quite stressful due to heat. Um, a grapevine unto itself, like most fruiting plants is a perennial. So it happens, it does the same thing every year. So we can actually track the impact of climate or the impact of um, decisions made or farming practices on how it impacts the perennial aspect of the vine's growing season. 
Katie Wallace, water is the number one input into beer. Uh, water is one way that I think people may feel climate more directly and locally. So how is climate affecting water and therefore beer? Sure. Um, it is Beer is over 90% water. And uh, being headquartered here in Colorado, we are um, very prone to drought and forest fires. Um, in 2012, we actually had the second largest forest fire in uh, Colorado, which obscured the use of our, um, our river here. And we had to fall back on contingency plans that were also quite vulnerable to fire that year as well. So um, we've narrowly escaped the perfect storm that would um, cause us to uh, lose access to a significant amount of water in our watershed. Um, you also see brewers in California that received, um, during the seven-year drought there, received water reduction mandates and had to understand how to manage production and employment through those times as well. Right. That was a big concern for Sierra Nevada Brewery uh, when there was the uh, multi-year California drought. And Katie Wallace, there's also some divisions between the eastern part of the country for water, therefore brewing, than there is in the western part. What's the east-west divide on water and climate? Sure. In the east, um, brewers have um, more issues with contamination and um, and growing of in invasive species and algae. Um, we, our brewery in North Carolina is actually higher up in the mountains, um, but we are aware of some water quality issues that are becoming more problematic as temperatures rise and there are fewer um, deep freezes and cold days. So it's not only a matter of the volume of water, it's the quality as well right. as access to it, Katie? Absolutely. And, and we see that here in the West, too. So um, when our water systems are, are more stressed um, and uh, whether we're dealing with algae, invasive algaes or um, in the, on the East or forest fires in the West, um, qu water quality um, can be affected at any time. And the water actually lends um, flavor attributes to the beer itself. So as those change and we're, we're having to adjust for that in the operations. Esther Mobley, what is smoke taint? <laughs> Uh, smoke taint refers to uh, when there's wildfire, as there uh, frequently is in the West, um, certain molecular compounds can take hold in grapes. And depending on when it happens during the growing season, the grapes can become more susceptible to taking on certain compounds in a way that ultimately will impact the wine that's made from them. The, the main culprit is something called guayacol that actually occurs naturally in grapes in smaller uh, concentrations. It's what gives Syrah that smoky, delicious taste. But when you have this really extreme high levels of it, um, the, the grapes can kind of taste like an ashtray. Smoke taint has become a major issue in California wine over the last couple of years. Um, it's certainly not new, just as wildfires aren't new, and uh, wineries here have been dealing with those for quite some time. But um, the last couple of years, there's been, uh, as wildfires in Northern California have happened right in the midst of uh, different points during the growing season, especially in the kind of late summer period. Um, people don't know how to deal with it. Are the growers responsible? Are the winemakers responsible? What happens if you can't make the wine? The science about how to maybe mitigate the effects of smoke taint isn't really uh, as advanced as it should be. So that's certainly a big question for wineries going forward. And given that wines are on a kind of delayed release cycle, 
the 2017 wildfires, um, which really severely affected Napa and Sonoma counties, those wines are kind of only now just getting out into the world. So um, we have yet to see whether a lot of wineries don't sell wine from that vintage or um, if we can taste some smokiness from them or maybe not at all. Do we know, Esther Mobley, if those fires had an economic impact on the industry? Certainly. Um, and a lot of that was uh, related to tourism. I mean, mm. those where Dan lives and works uh, depends so heavily on tourists. And within a few months, it was really life kind yeah. of back to normal for, for some people up there and certainly for the kind of main wineries. But um, the lingering perception of the whole area being ravaged um, really uh, seems to have affected some, a, a couple businesses that we spoke with at the Chronicle cited their closure as due to that. So people think, oh, it's bad up there, so I don't want to go there. It might be uncomfortable to see or, or unhealthy to go yeah. there. Do we know, Dan Petrosky, if these climate impacts are having a price impact uh, in the inputs and therefore the, the final product? Uh, are we seeing, is the price of wine going up because of these things? Um, the price of wine and profit margins do get impacted across the board with regards to climate activity, whether it be a drought conditions or heat waves or extended heat waves uh, or floods, because it's all about the, the major part of the price is built into the cost of the grapes. And so if your grape yield is lowered by half, um, that means you've done the same amount of energy and effort and work and, and financial inputs into the farming practice, but you received half of the raw material. So you have two choices to take a, a hit in your economics or to raise your price to kind of normalize your business line. Katie Wallace, there was a report a couple years ago that ha grabbed headlines about the impact of on beer supply and therefore the, the prices uh, that, that would be uh, from heat and other impacts. It got headlines around the world. The biggest impacts were, I think, in Europe. Uh, are we seeing that yet? The impact of um, higher beer prices because climate is in, uh, hitting the uh, the supply chain? Not quite yet. I think we're kind of at the phase of the canary in the coal mine. Um, that, uh, that study actually illustrated the worst case scenario, which we hope to ultimately avoid. Um, but but it certainly is something that we're, we're looking at. And already, if you're looking at the leading indicators, um, you are seeing changes to quality that we have to adjust for um, and near misses on uh, impacts to availability. And those two things, as they um, progress, as they have been, um, are, are going to lead to, to price impacts that I imagine brewers will try, much like the wineries will try to absorb some of those increases in their costs for some time, and then eventually um, we'll see if that has to pass on to the customer. But of course, we're, we're really hoping to push forward and be proactive and, and try to avoid the worst of the worst. The growing regions for some of these things are, are expanding. Uh, Katie Wallace, you know, hops, most of the hops are grown in Idaho and Washington. You know, is beer going to migrate north or, or can it migrate further north? Yeah, um, hops, about 95% of the hops in the United States are grown in Washington, Oregon, and Idaho um, because of the optimal um, climate there and also because of the long daylight, the, the 
um, extended daylight hours that they have in the north there um, that help to increase the yields per acre. Moving farther north, you're getting into um, colder temperatures. Moving any further south, you get into lower levels of light in the growing season, um, which will impact the hops. So they don't have a lot of room to move around. Um, and then barley is grown in northern latitudes of Montana, Alberta, Canada, and a bit of Colorado. And, um, and so as other crops need to push north due to um, pest invasions or other climate change-induced causes, um, we really don't have much further to go before we hit the tar sands up there in, in Canada. So barley is one of those crops that um, is not a primary crop for a lot of farmers, and it's, it's oftentimes a rotation crop. And so um, that's an easy one to, to squeeze out as we push for more crops further north. Yeah, wine from the tar sands doesn't sound very appealing. Um, uh, Esther Mobley, uh, people don't think of Canada. Wine doesn't come to mind, but wine is starting to move up there. So are we going to start seeing some Canadian wines? Like, is that a, an opportunity? There's some real short-term positives here for some people in regions. Certainly. And um, Canada does have a major wine industry, and the the rise of wines, especially from British Columbia over the last decade, has um, been undoubtedly partly due to climate change, as well as to their own talent and hard work. But yeah, that's one of the crazy things about climate change for wine, is that in the short term, it's kind of a lot of um, good news among some not so good news. But um, thanks to warming temperatures, sparkling wine production is now possible in England, a place that uh, would have always been considered way too cold to grow wine successfully. Um, same with parts of Canada. And um, we're seeing the global map expanding, as you're alluding to, where it's possible to make wine. That's true also at higher altitudes. And it's also true um, in regions that have produced wine for a long time, like Burgundy in France or Oregon, but that have always had kind of variable growing conditions. It might be too cold, it might be too rainy to have a great vintage. They can now count on kind of consistently having a warm enough, ripe enough vintage to have a great crop every year. The New York Times did a, a recent piece on kind of the, the effect on the wine industry. They talked about the elevation, uh, expanding map. Um, Dan Petrosky, what are some other impacts that are happening because of climate? Um, there's a lot. Of, there's more economic impacts with regards to workforce labor impacts. You know, I like the, the, this conversation about the shifting of, of climate throughout the globe and the wine industry because you get to see, as Esther alluded to, you get to see more consistency and more quality throughout the world. So it's never been a better time to be a wine drinker. But that shift is still continuing, and we're going to have to be worrying about that uh, two to three decades from now. And we're going to be thinking about other grape varieties because our region of choice may not be. Um, precisely proper for those grapes that we've been historically and traditionally planting. Um, and again, the example of England and, and being able to grow grapes today. Um, so that's shifting in California as well. So Cabernet may not be the grape variety of Napa Valley 20 years from now. And it's just worth noting for those who don't live and breathe wine, um, every grape variety has a kind of sweet spot temperature and climate wise, and even sometimes soil wise. So you can grow Riesling really successfully in Chile, Germany, but you can grow a grape like Tempranillo in kind of desert-like hot Spain. So when we're talking about can Napa continue to grow Cabernet, we're, we're looking at 
Cabernet wants this kind of certain band of temperature, we see that Napa Valley's temperature is consistently rising over time. Theoretically, there it really is a point where it's too hot for that grape variety, but not too hot for some others. Um, and so thinking about other parts of the world, Mediterranean climates that grow other grapes really well, despite a lot of heat, is I think what a lot of winemakers like Dan are looking to. You're listening to a Climate One conversation about beer and wine in a warmer world. Coming up, we'll look at the impacts of climate change on the people who work in beer and winemaking. It's making the issue of figuring out mechanization in vineyards even more pressing because there's just not as many people to do this work and those who are doing the work, it's becoming more difficult all the time. That's up next when Climate One continues. This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're talking about the impacts of climate change on beer and wine with Esther Mobley, wine reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle, Dan Petrosky, a winemaker at Larkmead Vineyards in Napa Valley, California, and Katie Wallace, director of social and environmental impact at New Belgium Brewing in Fort Collins, Colorado. As Katie mentioned earlier, craft brewers have gotten creative with a whole variety of flavors in their beers. She explains how less predictable weather is making companies scramble to sustain that special taste. A couple of years ago when the hurricanes hit, went through the south in the United States here, um, a lot of the orange crop was decimated. And so um, it took us just over a month to scrap together um, a couple of orders that equaled the amount of orange peel we needed to make our fat tire Belgian white. So it certainly makes it um, a little bit more of a roller coaster to, to possibly secure some of those ingredients. You know, barley has to produce a certain amount of um, starch that becomes sugar eventually once it's, it's malted, um, which is our extract. And, uh, and that actually needs a really specific growing environment for that. So we had an occasion um, a few years ago where barley sprouted across most of the barley growing regions in North America because of a warm and wet harvest season. And so um, we're actually not necessarily at that stage able to um, switch to a different ingredient. Um, it's something that we had to dip into reserves for. And if that were to happen multiple years in a row, we're starting to get into just an availability issue overall. But yeah, I think that as um, certain ingredients become more volatile, that it really reduces the amount that we have to play with. And that's kind of the, the keystone of the craft beer movement is that we have all of these fun ingredients to play with. You can really put all kinds of fruits and spices and hops um, into your beers. And, um, and if anything, I think it'll just uh, narrow the availability of that. But craft brewers are creative, I'm sure, come up with some new flavors for sure. So we're talking about some, in the grand picture of climate conversations, we're talking about some mm -hmm. inconveniences and some high-class problems here. I do want to bring in the, the workers and people who are often not part of the conversation and overlooked. And as temperatures rise and wildfires become more common, conditions for farm workers are getting more dangerous. Armando Elenis is a secretary treasurer of the United Farm Workers. He was an immigrant farm worker himself as a teenager. We asked him how workers in the legendary Napa and Sonoma wine country have been faring and how the wine industry can get better, help them stay healthy. We represent almost a thousand farm workers up in the Napa Valley that work in the vineyards. When the fires hit, 
up in that region. Workers weren't prepared. The employers weren't prepared. You know, when you don't work in the heat as much, such as in the Napa Valley, where it doesn't get as hot, but then all of a sudden it does get hot. It's something that takes people by surprise because they're not acclimated. They're not used to working those type of extreme temperatures. So sometimes that's actually even worse versus somebody let's just say in the San Joaquin Valley that's, that gets acclimated and is more used to working in those temperatures. You know, most of the work is done uh, piece rates. Uh, most workers get paid by, you know, how much they pick. And so that puts a lot more stress on the body, especially with the, the heat uh, and the temperatures climbing. It puts a lot of pressure for the grower to also get that crop off the ground and get it harvested or lose money. And same thing for the employee. They're worried about losing income. As these temperatures increase, as the fires are more exposed, I would really urge the wine industry to figure out, okay, what can they do proactively to not give that worker that incentive to continue working because uh, and, or, and or provide them an incentive to be safer and provide them at a safety net so they can stop working because obviously that could have much bigger impact on their brand and worker lives. That was Armando Elenas, Secretary Treasurer of the United Farm Workers. Dan Petrosky, your response there. A lot in there about worker vulnerability, working conditions, pressures on them, and, and also the Central Valley where most wine is made yeah. is really, really hot. Very hot. Um, you know, we do most of the picking uh, throughout, you know, 24 hours a day. So a lot of it happens uh, when the sun goes down, um, especially during the harvest time. It's the most stressful time when you're actually moving um, 40 pound lug boxes around and uh, a single farm worker could move a couple thousand pounds a day by themselves. Um, and then they'll move from one site to another site, um, usually in the dark. And we're doing that for reasons of heat. Um, because we don't want the, A, we, we have rules and regulations to support our farm workers to keep them out of the, the, the um, inclement weather. So once it hits a certain degree, we stop work. Um, but most work will start at, you know, at daybreak um, during the non-harvest season. Uh, we do our best in, in, in order to support you know, the efforts they do because the romance behind the handwork that is done by our farm workers and our laborers is, um, is second. You know, the, the, the romance lifts the industry, but the work that they do is second to none with regards to energy effort, and they need to be supported as much as we possibly can. Esther, your thoughts on the worker vulnerability? We've written a lot extensively about this, and um, what's happening is, for the reasons you are describing, is that fewer and fewer people want to be farm workers in California. And um, wineries throughout California are having a lot of trouble finding workers to do this work. And um, at the highest end wineries, they're paying quite a bit um, to highly skilled workers. I spoke with one a vineyard management company last year that was saying at the peak of harvest, their farm workers were earning $45 an hour. And so I think it's making the issue of figuring out mechanization in vineyards even more pressing because uh, there's just not as many people to do this work. And those who are doing the work, it's becoming more difficult all the time. Katie, are, is uh, robots coming into beer? Um, we have a robot at our brewery. <laughs> it palletizes our beer. It's pretty mesmer mesmerizing to watch. Um, but yes, I think autom automation is one of those things that, um, you know, we are 
subject to as well. Um, and uh, probably most impacted, um, I would say coming up, uh, the biggest impact might be over with our truck drivers um, that distribute beer across the country with over-the-road trucks when we're looking at um, driverless vehicles. Um, but I think uh, it's really fun. There's one job here that that technology can't seem to infiltrate, and that is our sensory lab. Um, so far, technology hasn't been able to replicate the the human nose and mouth and sensory organs um, to to be able to test the quality of our beer and the tastiness of it. But um, but we, I think, to some degree, we are impacted, and um, and at the warehouse level and at the driver level, you'll see more of that. We're talking about warm beer and hot wine. My guests are Esther Mobley, reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle. Dan Petrosky is a winemaker at Larkmead Vineyards in California's Napa Valley. And Katie Wallace, director of social and environmental impact for New Belgium Brewing in Colorado. Um, Dan, Katie mentioned uh, distribution. Let's talk about some of the economics, the business model of moving around heavy liquids around the country in heavy glass on trucks running on diesel. That, open that up into <laughs> uh, the operational impact of this industry. Yeah. It is um, the glass, you know, which seems wonderful because it's recyclable. Um, it's not plastic. It's, uh, and, and, but the, the downside of that is it's about 40 to 45% of the greenhouse gas emissions uh, in the process. Um, so what I mean by that is um, you have to think about the start of it, you know, glass becoming, you know, being made from sand and how, how hot you have to use fossil fuels and how hot you have to get it in order to create that bottle. That most of those glass bottles for the wine industry are created in California, Mexico, Dubai, uh, France, Spain, and they get shipped over on a container to America, then redistributed into a warehouse, which is temperature controlled, and then sent to uh, the winery, and then filled with wine. And now you're talking about um, a 40-pound case of wine that goes to another warehouse, uh, truck to another warehouse, is temperature controlled, and then sent on a truck across the country to the East Coast. So you, you start adding all that up, and it is 40 to 45% of the, uh, the industry's uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So the, not only the supply chain, um, but the distribution network. So from the start to the finish, to, to the bottle ending up in your home, um, on your table, it's um, something we need to be thinking about as an industry um, if we are going to have um, an impact on slowing things down with regards to the changing of the climate. So what's the alternative um, to do all that <laughs> from the making of the fossil fuels, making the bottle, all the trucks, all the way to a refrigerator? What's the alternative? What's the solution? I do think that, you know, we all know change is hard, and especially in, a, in an industry like wine. We've still struggling through whether we can put screw caps on a wine bottle instead of a cork, because cork is traditional. And making that change and us having to go through that, um, that psychosis of change, it's very difficult for us. And taking wine out of a bottle, putting it in a can, putting it in a single serving, you're just doubling the footprint at that point. Um, not saying that that's the answer. I don't really have an answer to glass. Lighter weight glass is definitely an answer. Um, closer to home, businesses uh, like Gallo, which produces one of every five bottles of wine consumed in America, they have their own glass factories. So they're bringing a lot of that uh, manufacturing in-house and keeping it local, um, reducing the weight of those glass bottles. Uh, so they're doing a lot in, to benefit their own um, supply chain as well as their distribution networks and the weight of all their you know, but they're doing that for cost reasons. Gallo's not really on the sustainability edge of this, right? It, they're not, but at the same time, they're doing a better job than the majority of the industry because of the localization and because of their, um, their, their focus towards lighter weight glass, which costs less money to produce and therefore can keep their bottle cost price down. 
Katie Wallace, same problem for beer. The glass is the biggest part of the, the greenhouse gas footprint of a, of a bottle of beer. Uh, what, are the, what are the solutions? What are the options? I mean, plastic yeah. bottles? Well, you know, cans are ever more popular, in, especially in craft beer right now. Um, but we did a, a carbon footprint study to compare the, our lightweighted bottles with our cans, and it turns out they're roughly similar. Um, the beginning of the life cycle of cans is pretty destructive, and smelting of uh, bauxite into aluminum is also um, pretty energy intensive. Um, and so increasing recycled content, improving uh, collection systems across the nation um, is, a, is an opportunity for improvement so that we can, um, the, the recycled content melts at a lower temperature and therefore requires less energy than the virgin uh, materials for glass and for cans. Um, and then returnable bottles is just a really interesting thing. If you live in Oregon and you have access to the bottle drop program um, or in parts of California, um, moving to a returnable actually decreases the emissions by about 80%. And much like the wine industry, our containers um, contribute about 40, almost 45% of our total emissions. And so, um, so that's something that I see the, really the main way that we can drop greenhouse gas emissions across our life cycle uh, would be going to ref refillable bottles at some point. It's been a long time since a bottle bill was passed in, in this country. And uh, Katie Wallace, you've done some research, looked into some research for, uh, by others in Florida, Maryland, and Massachusetts about industry saying that uh, basically deposits will hurt sales. Is that actually the case economically? Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, the data suggests that it's not actually the case. Um, only ten states in the U.S. have a bottle bill, and the majority of all of the recycled content that you have actually comes from those ten states. Um, so, in Colorado, for example, um, our bottles have less than fifteen percent recycled content, but we could collect um, at least five times that amount if we had a bottle bill in our state. I think there, there's a lot of opposition because of fears that are un, ungrounded in data, um, and those, there's a, an additional uh, cost to sometimes the retailers or the distributors that have to collect the bottles as well. But there are um, some deposit programs that work better than others, more business friendly. And um, the Oregon model, again, I keep talking about Oregon, uh, but that model is also um, much more business friendly and successful in, in, in actually redeeming the containers, increasing the recycled content. We're talking about beer and wine and climate change with Esther Mobley, Dan Petrosky, and Katie Wallace. i uh, got some quick questions for you. Uh, true or false, Dan Petrosky, you have drunk wine out of a box. True. Esther Mobley, uh, true or false, you think wine bottles with screw tops are legit. True. True or false, Katie Wallace, wine drinkers are smarter than beer drinkers. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> True or false, Dan Petrosky, uh, consumers are willing to pay $100 to drink wine out of a tin can. False. Katie Wallace, true or false, beer giants are moving to lock up supplies of ingredients and lock out small brewers. Inherently, that is happening. Esther Mobley, your favorite varietal of wine. Oh, no. That's like asking if you had a favorite child, if you had multiple children. I love it all. Okay, I guess we'll accept that. Um, uh, Dan Petrosky, your favorite beer? Oh. Oh, um, a craft brew out of uh, my hometown, Brooklyn, New York, uh, called um, Other Half. All right, last one. Katie Wallace, a flavor of craft beer that you can't stand. There's not. I don't think I've had a beer. I mean, I, I, would, I would say an expired oxidized beer. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yesterday's beer, you mean. Flat Stale beer. beer. Okay. Is, that's okay. it. All right, let's Thank give them you. a round of applause for getting through the lightning round. <laughs> the more I talk about and think about climate change, it kind of it gets, ultimately gets down to, to power, Dan Petrosky. So how do you think about climate kind of impacting, hurting, you know, the big players in the wine industry? There's been a lot of consolidation, like all industries, and... They'll be, they'll be able to move things around, and, and there's not much middle left in America, middle-sized companies, middle class. So think about power and climate and wine. What, yeah. what, how, what's that look like in the future? Oh, I'm, I'm excited about it. There's never been uh, a better time for leadership in, this, in our industry, the wine industry, and I do think there are two families that are generational families, not public companies, but large multinational companies, one out of Spain, the Torres family, which has holdings in South America and in California, and then also Kendall Jackson, uh, the Jackson family, which is a, a multinational with Australia, South Africa, uh, Italy, um, and their, their, their most famous Vintners Reserve, uh, Chardonnay in California. These are two families that have taken such strides uh, to set a, a program in place that's going to be releasing soon about greenhouse gas emissions and thinking about their wine production from raw material to your home and to the restaurant table. Um, and they've, they, they're taking it backwards and they're looking at all the aspects that we talked about earlier from the supply chain, the raw material distribution networks, trucking, weight of bottles. And they're doing things that I think are admirable and that are leadership. And I think that'll, that at that level, we are going to be very fortunate that we'll hopefully have a nice tail of uh, small businesses that can kind of glom on to their successes, what's working for them. So I'm really excited. Katie Wallace, what are you seeing in the, in the beer industry in terms of, was it big le companies leading or is it small companies leading? We heard hear about family companies leading for their own preservation and sustainability. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, there are a lot of medium-sized companies that have been leading for quite a while, um, carrying the craft beer ethos that you know, are really grounded in community and, and a healthy ecosystem. Um, and the good news is that we see the bigger companies and even some that are publicly traded that are um, right now in the last several years investing quite a bit in some sustainability initiatives. Um, I know that they are, are starting to analyze the risk and realizing that this is actually the cheaper way to go about it is investing sooner than later in reducing their own emissions and their, their exposure to risk. I think the bad news is when, we, like as we talked about earlier, our supply chains are going to be more volatile and problematic. They already are starting to become that way. And the smaller companies, your neighborhood brewery that's just a tap room, um, those are the companies that have a harder time getting contracts because of their scale. And as the supply chain becomes more volatile in quality and availability, um, the people, the companies that don't have those contracts are going to be more subject to the shortages and the reduced quality. So that's something that we see as a little unfortunate is that that's the American dream, you know, that craft brewery around the corner and the entrepreneurs that run that. And unfortunately, I think those are going to be the ones that are at greater risk down the road. One bourbon, one scotch, and one bill. You're listening to a conversation about beer, wine, and climate disruption. This is Climate One. Coming up, does talking about climate's impact on alcoholic drinks make it easier or harder to discuss climate change? When we say the beer is going away, that's what really gets people to listen. I mean, I guess, is it more important to get people to listen at any cost? That's up next when Climate One continues.
This is Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. We're talking about warm beer and hot wine with Katie Wallace, Director of Social and Environmental Impact at New Belgium Brewing in Fort Collins, Colorado. Esther Mobley, wine reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle. And Dan Petrosky, a winemaker at Larkmead Vineyards in Napa Valley, California. Dan explains how extreme weather is making climate less of a dirty word on the agricultural side of winemaking. We are small family businesses up and down uh, the coast of California, and these small family businesses deal with everything from the agricultural um, raw material to manufacturing of their product, then to the hospitality of bringing people into their spaces and serving them a glass of wine, to the sales and marketing and knocking on doors and restaurants and retailers in the state of California, to dealing with national wholesale distributors and moving their product uh, nationwide. So it is, it is one of the most integrated businesses. So I, didn't, I think one out of the five of them is in their face every day with maybe, a, you know, for lack of a better term, a small fire that they have to put out. And so I think the agricultural side of it is just, it's that perennial crop that keeps coming. And if it's a good year, it's a good year. If it's a great year, it's a great year. If there's a low yield, it's a bad year financially. So I I think that's been the approach towards farming and our product. But I think that is now changing because I think it's the forest from the trees conversation. Um, How much can you actually see when you're a business that deals with five channels of activity from the raw material to manufacturing to distribution to hospitality wholesale, national sales. I mean, it's, it is a big endeavor for a single company. Most places don't do all those things. After Mobley, does climate come up in, in the wine conversations you have if you don't bring it up? Um, it frequently does come up in my conversations, in my reporting, um, even when I'm not uh, writing a climate change story per se. I cover California wine at large, and so it's really hard to have a conversation with winemakers when you don't talk about the weather, A, that's all they really want to talk about, Um, (laughs) wildfires, uh, all the other things throughout the year that might be threatening their crop and their sustainability practices, whether they farm organically, et cetera. So um, it comes up a lot. And when it doesn't, I often bring it up even when that's not the main subject at hand. You mentioned organic farming. There's also dry farming. There's, as we've mentioned, a little bit of mechanization. Are there technological solutions? We haven't touched on GMOs yet. You know, some industries are looking for Americans who kind of look for that tech fix. Like, what can, what can be the tech fix? Can we kind of engineer our way out of this? Well, there's way ways to kind of potentially enhance drought tolerance without doing genetic modification for grapevines, simply planting the the scion of a plant onto a different kind of rootstock. That's where a lot of the research is happening. Um, Certainly what a lot of people drink that's in the grocery store shelves is um, not the kind of wine that Dan's making. That's really the creme de la creme of what... uh, California can produce. But even when you're buying your boxed wine at the grocery store, it still says California. And wine is really inextricable from place. So it's not just a matter of if it gets too hot here, can we start growing these grapes over there where it's maybe a little cooler? It would really be a kind of existential shift away from thinking of Napa Valley wine, Sonoma wine, these places that are are just completely tied up in the character of the wine, the quality of the wine, real and perceived. And so um, 
I think it's it's going to be harder to engineer our way out of this one than some other agricultural products. I mean, I've uh, lived in California for, since the 1960s, and I've just noticed the expansion of, you know, just the vineyards taking over places south of King City, a place 100 and 200 miles mm-hmm. south of San Francisco. It's now there's, there's grapes everywhere. Um, Esther Mobley, are we going to see fallow land? Are we going to see that go back to, to what it was before because wine is no longer sustainable, or are we just going to see a stylistic shift? Hard to know. Um, I think certainly in Monterey County, where King City is, um, there's a lot of other crops that that are profitable, compete with wine, um, are easier for laborers, uh, maybe aren't as uh, volatile to, you know, those little cutie things, um, the tiny little citruses, oranges. Some growers, grape growers in Monterey County have been like, those are taking away all my labor. So um, that may happen, but listen, it's and and the other crop that may take away some of wine's uh, land share is cannabis, um, but wine grapes, as far as an agricultural product go, are a pretty lucrative one, so that should insulate them to some degree. Katie Wallace, what's your biggest concern when you think about climate change? You look ahead. What's what's the, you know if it's not uh, orange peels, what's the biggest concern <laughs> you think about? I think it's. More broadly, the volatility. Um, once, if if there is a big shift, uh, the market can uh, and the job force can typically adjust to a shift. But when there's multiple shifts coming from multiple different directions, um, that dynamic volatility is just something that is going to be harder to respond to um, as a business. I don't think that our communities and um, and destinations, our business and our businesses are just equipped well enough to to respond quickly, continuously. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I have a lot of hope in the ability for humans to, um, come together and, and be resourceful and inventive in, in times of need. Um, I hope it doesn't have to get to a place of extreme hardship before we, we do that in our businesses or in our communities and lives. But I do have a lot of hope that, um, if we are eyes wide open about what we're facing, that we can really come up with a number of solutions to address it preemptively. And I want to get, we're going to go to Arne's questions, but I want to get bright spots before uh, mm-hmm. Esther. What are some bright spots? Well, Dan, you've already said that's a great time to be a wine drinker. And, and you've said, <laughs> Esther, that it's a good time for, for short term. What are some other bright spots? Dan's smiling, so he must have a good one. No, it's, um, I, I come at it from a wine drinker's perspective first and a winemaker's perspective second. And it's just truly, we can drink uh, great wine throughout the world due to the lack of variability over the last two or three decades due to the ability for grapevines to ripen um, more effectively um, and yield larger crops uh, due to consistency. But um, I echo Katie's uh, hopes and fears about the, the future variability. So the bright spots right now are just if we can ride this wave, I do think we will have uh, a nice runway to continue to drink well um, eat well in an agricultural world that we live in, and but yeah, the wine industry right now is uh, is is it's it's better than it's ever been. So um, as long as we can kind of take that and take that momentum, and you ask about what the future looks like, take that momentum and try to protect and preserve that momentum. I think we're going to be in a really good spot for a decade or two to come. Esther. Yeah. In addition to the obvious that there's more great wine available from more parts of the world than there ever were, to me, one of the great bright spots is that it's hopefully going to be a, a catalyst for 
um, different parts of the wine industry coming together to solve a problem collaboratively. I mean, if there ever was one that really was clearly going to um, impact everyone and demanded everyone's attention, this is it. And so um, I'm looking forward to that. Could I offer a, a bright spot too? Sure, we won't leave you in darkness, yes. <laughs> okay, thanks. Um, I, I think a couple of things that are really exciting right now, um, more people are talking about regenerative agriculture, soil health, and, um, and carbon sequestration throughout the farming practice. So, um, so I, I haven't seen that level of momentum um, over the last 10, 15 years that I've seen just in the last two. Um, so I think that, that what, could, what is now one of our greatest impacts could um, eventually become a part of the solution, which is really exciting for agricultural-based products. Um, I'm also really encouraged to see um, more businesses and, um, and uh, policymakers on both sides of the aisle looking at, at federal carbon limits and making commitments towards 100% renewables, um, because I do think that this isn't something that any of our companies can solve alone, and it's going to take a systemic shift, and, and that's the only thing that's gonna get us there quick enough. And so it's really great now that there's people across the aisle and across corporations that are seeing the, the value in that these days. Soil is sexy and may, may save us. It's a bit, there's a lot to that. We're talking about warm beer and hot wine with Esther Mobley, reporter of the San Francisco Chronicle, Dan Petrosky with Larkmead Vineyards in Napa Valley, Katie Wallace with New Belgium Brewing. We're going to go to our audience question. Welcome. Hi, I'm Annie. I'm a brewer at 21st Amendment. Um, I was just wondering if one of you would like to talk on um, using the decline of a luxury good to motivate people into action over climate change mm -hmm. and whether that's really a responsible thing to do. Fair question. We're kind of in an elitist bubble up here talking about these things. Sometimes luxury brands lead, Tesla being an example. Who'd like to tackle that? Uh, well, the, I was rereading material about the beer study that you all were citing earlier, um, and the authors who of that study who are researchers who have obviously been doggedly researching climate change issues, one of them tweeted, this is the only thing that was garnering attention. You know, we've been talking about all sorts of things related to climate, but when we say the beer is going away... Uh, that's what really gets people to listen. I mean, I guess, you know, is it more important to get people to listen at any cost? Um, maybe we have to find some way to kind of make these things sexy if we're going to somehow convey them to a really, really large audience. But I, I share your cynicism that it's too bad that people aren't just motivated thinking about the problems in the abstract before we get to talking about um, IPAs and Cabernet. Chocolate, I would add in there. We did a program on chocolate once and that got people attention. <gasps> chocolate. Let's go to our next question. Welcome. My name is Lee. I work at Flatiron Wines and Spirits here in the city. Um, there seems to be a lot of organizations that uh, sort of help maintain the status quo, uh, Dan, specifically. Have you or anybody you've spoken to in the wine industry thought about creating an organization that would support kind of a clearinghouse for these ideas and these efforts? I echo a little bit of what Esther said earlier about different organizations, and there's not a lot of clarity to what some of them are doing and why. Um, I don't think there is one right now um, in the wine industry that is speaking um, out 
perfectly on the subject matter. Um, there is the Porto Protocol, which came from a family of, of wine growers in Portugal who, uh, whose family businesses uh, rely on making and growing wine grapes and making port wine. Mm -hmm. And that's a very uh, important um, movement going forward. There is another uh, organization that is coming down the pipe that I mentioned earlier about the Torres family and the Jackson family, uh, two multinationals from two continents coming together to bring a few um, good wineries together and hopefully support you know, lowering their greenhouse gas emissions by um, up to 80% um, by 2040. So the, the conversation is starting um, at major levels. It has to kind of have a trickle-down effect um, and, and get everyone involved. Again, hopefully you know, we can all work within our own framework um, and our capabilities, um, whether we're doing a little or a great deal, uh, to have an impact. But um, the organizations, you'll see more of it and more clarity coming through the pipeline in the next uh, 12 to 18 months. Does seem to be less visible uh, in these beverages than it is in, say, clothing or some other electronics or other consumer products, um, even even seafood, that sort of thing. Paper, for stewardship council labels, that sort of thing. Uh, let's go to our next question. Welcome. Uh, my name's Taylor. I work in clean energy, so naturally, I was wondering if you could talk a bit about the move for beverage companies to focus on energy emissions, whether it's vineyards putting solar on their roofs to get through the harvest or uh, breweries going 100% clean energy. Dan Petrowski, I'll put you on the spot. When we talked on the phone, uh, there, I think you there's because of the power outages and fires recently, there's been a lot of diesel backup, dirty diesel backup generators uh, being purchased. And the Chronicle has, has written about this. So tell us about the energy input. Yeah, um, we're, you know, I think there's, there's this balance in life. Um, you can have a diesel energy uh, backup source like a generator uh, to control all the good things you do, um, whether it be you know solar power or organic farming or Bay Area green business and all the other certifications that we have um, that have anointed us as one of uh, the leaders in in sustainability and and um, energy efficiency. Um, but we ha we still have a business to run in order to do that and to employ people and to uh, move forward and and hopefully have a healthy crop and bring our product forward, we had to purchase a, a generator. And we did this past year, and we, uh, we bought one of the cleanest, most efficient uh, generators we could find uh, on the market. And um, we're happy to have had that. This is uh, the third year in a row where power was lost um, during the harvest season. Um, it is one of our uh, toughest times of the year to go down in power. So we were out for four days, and we had that backup generator um, during, running the winery at that point. Katie Wallace, uh, Budweiser ran an advertisement during the Super Bowl uh, with uh, amber waves of grain and course, and, and it pulled back to windmills, and windmills were very much the, the center of that. I understand that energy, uh, clean energy is not really active am among craft brewers because they may be in a mall somewhere and not, not directly source their energy, but can you speak to renewable energy at the larger companies, whether that's... Uh, important to them and you know why is Budweiser doing that I think it's really wonderful like I said before that the larger companies are starting to see some business value in this um, through a combination of their risk assessments and also um, now the afford affordability of renewables uh, um, as that increases and also the the state and federal level um, incentives 
Um, and I, and there are also many craft breweries that are um, purchasing solar power or wind power. Um, we have wind power that comes from Wyoming, just up the road. We have biogas um, that results out of our process water treatment plant. We make electricity with it. We also have solar on site. And, um, and there are and dozens of breweries that are, are moving in the same direction. Um, I would say for the smaller companies, though, like um, that there are the, probably one of our best opportunities to secure renewables would be in uh, getting our, our utilities and our um, municipalities to commit to 100% renewables. Um, we lobbied our local government here to um, adopt 100% renewable electricity by 2030, and they voted that in last year in 2018, which is going to be the most efficient and effective way for us as a smaller to medium-sized company to um, secure our renewables. You've been listening to a conversation about beer, wine, and climate change with Katie Wallace, Director of Social and Environmental Impact at New Belgium Brewing in Fort Collins, Colorado, Esther Mobley, a wine reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle, and Dan Petrosky, a winemaker at Larkmead Vineyards in Napa Valley, California. To hear more Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at climateone.org. Please help us get more people talking about climate by giving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. Sarah Catherine Coxon is the strategy and content manager. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner, Justin Norton, and Arnav Gupta. Devin Strolovich edited the program. Dr. Gloria Duffy is the CEO of the Commonwealth Club of California, where our program originates. I'm Greg Dalton.